chapter 1, starting at verse 26. And it's very short, so I'm going to give you time to find it if you want to, otherwise it'll be over before you're there. So it's on page 3 of the Church Bibles. Genesis chapter 1 and starting at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sarah. Let's pray as we think about that together. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would take your inspired word and by your promised Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts and lives that we might see that it is in you that we can find our identity and have true freedom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Who am I? I'll be honest, I played with the idea of leaving a massive pause there just to see who was kind enough to quickly come and offer me assistance. The vicar's obviously lost it this morning. Who am I? Well, in social situations, we tend to answer the question of, oh, who are you, with our name first, don't we? I'm Tom. Uh, Then it tends to be our job or a job that we've had. I'm a vicar. And then everything else that might actually be important about us tends to be relegated or ignored entirely. But that question of who am I? Who are we? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be alive? Is a question that has spanned the, the ages and the places throughout human history. And you might get a very different answer depending on which literal person you ask. Ask a literal chemist, who am I? And they might tell you that your body is approximately 99% composed of just six elements, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, carbon, calcium, and phosphorus. And then another five elements that make up 0.85%, sulfur, potassium, sodium, chlorine, and magnesium. A little bit more chlorine if you've been swimming recently. That's what the literal chemist might tell you who you are. Ask the historian who you are, though, and they might tell you to look at your family tree or to go on that TV program, who do you think you are? They might, together with a biologist, look at the combination of your ancestors' DNA filtered through the historical situations that they and you have found yourself in. 
Or if you ask a philosopher, the most famous was Descartes in answering this question with that posh-sounding Latin phrase, cogito ergo sum, which means I think, therefore I am. He wrestled with the idea of how do we know what anything is, let alone ourselves. The things we experience that we might see or touch or smell or taste could be in my imagination, could all be an illusion. All I know is that I receive these senses. And so if I'm anything at all, I must at least be a consciousness that's able to think about these things which may or may not exist. It's incredibly depressing. (laughs) But who I think I am, who we all think we are, determines so much about us. Our identity is absolutely at the heart of much human questioning and living. And for Christians, this question of our identity gets behind, I think, a lot of the differences that we encounter between the way that Jesus calls us to live and the expectations, perhaps even the pressures, of the culture around us. Just think of some of the hot issues, if you like, uh, that uh, we might experience this difference between what we read Jesus saying and what the world around us tends to say about things like marriage, gender, what it means to be human. So identity is so important. It's always been important, and it's important now. And it's important for us as Christians that we come back to what God has said about where we find our identity. And that's what I want to explore for the next sort of 15 minutes or so. Who are we? Who am I? I want to start by uh, thinking about some of that culture around us before we get into that passage in Genesis. For trying to answer the question, who am I? Then I think a lot of the time the culture is is asking this question, our next question this morning. Am I my own creation? Am I free to be who I want to be? Is my identity something which is given to me by someone or something outside of me? Or is it something that I should be free to create for myself? Coming back to that question of gender, which has been such a swift move in the society around us. Forms increasingly these days will ask you not what sex you are, but what sex you were assigned. It's a move between this understanding that our identity is in some way external or objective to this idea that actually we should be free to create our own identity. It's up to us as individuals who we are. Our culture has moved away from the idea that we are created, by and large, and so people have to find or create or determine their own identity. Now, of course, in reality, if there was no God, no creation, no cosmic purpose for why we're here, then really, in the context of the universe, we are less than a blip on a speck for an instant in a nigh-on nothingness. Let me say that again. If there is no God, 
no creation and no cosmic purpose for why we're here, then the reality is that we are less than a blip on a speck for an instant in a nigh-on nothingness. I bet you'd never put that in a birthday card. (laughs) So as the Christian worldview has receded, people have needed to form or understand their identity because actually there's something in us as humans that says we're not just a blip on a speck for an instant in an eye on nothingness. There's something in us that says that life must be more than that. There's something about experiencing human life innately that tells us there is more to life than this. That's why Alpha uses that as one of their taglines. Is there more to life than this? And so people have to find a way of giving life meaning. If our life's meaning and purpose, if our identity is not given to us by a God who made us, then of course we have to try and find and create that identity for ourselves. Our lives do have meaning. Everyone agrees on that. The question is, where does it come from? And I think that's really helpful to understand. To understand that when we sometimes see this difference in the way that Jesus calls us to live, to the way that our culture is sort of expecting us to explore and be free to do things our own way, it's not because people are being deliberately antagonistic or trying to be hurtful or disrespectful of uh, Christian beliefs. Most people, most of the time, are really trying to be good and to have freedom to follow their feelings about who they are. It's just coming from a very different perspective, a polar opposite perspective. One that we have in Scripture, which tells us that we've been created, as we heard in our reading, and one increasingly in the culture around us that says we've not been created, and therefore we have to or we're free to try and find that identity for ourselves. And on the surface, if I'm honest, it sounds quite appealing. It sounds like freedom, doesn't it? It sounds like freedom to be able to determine who I am and uh, what I do with my life and uh, who uh, and how many people I can get married to or all of those things. It, that sounds like freedom. That sounds like the one that has more choice. And, uh, and it sounds like that because that's what our culture tells us real freedom looks like. But the problem is, it's not true. And in a minute, I want to go on to try and make the case from Genesis about real freedom being found in being life according to the maker's instructions. Because we have been made. All of us, everyone, every single human has been made and made in the image of God. We've been designed. And things which are designed have a way to operate in which... They operate at their best. Take, for example, a Formula One car. One of the most expensive, most intricate pieces of human design. To be able to propel a human round a course at incredible speeds, round corners as fast as you possibly can, minimizing drag, absolute power. It's carefully designed. And when it's on a racetrack, in the hands of a skillful driver, it absolutely flies round the course. This is a controversial opinion. That's what makes it such a boring sport to watch. (laughs) 
That's why people only watch it for the crashes. But a Formula One car is designed to go around a track. And when you put it on a track and it's doing the thing that it's made to do, the thing it's designed to do, that's when it flies. Hopefully not literally. That's when it zooms. That's when it does its thing and it's exciting and it's good. But if you take that Formula One car and you take it away from what it's been designed for and you put it on an off-roading course with bumps and mud and pits and gravel and water perhaps not quite at the level of getting onto Thorny, but not far off, that Formula One car is going to go a few feet before it's stuck in the mud. It won't find true freedom by taking that Formula One car and driving it wherever you want. You wouldn't even be able to drive it down the road. The holes holes in the road, the speed bumps, the corners, they wouldn't work for it. It's not what it's designed to do. And so it won't find real freedom. Actually, it'll get stuck or get in a mess or worse. It'll just crash straight away. For a Formula One car to enjoy what it was made for is to be run in the way it was designed to be run. And as Christians, we've got to believe that we have been designed in a certain way as well. And that real freedom, real joy, real happiness, lasting pleasure, true difference, meaning, and a purpose to our life comes when we run our life in the way it was designed for. Because we have been made, we have been created, we've been designed for a purpose. And real joy comes, real expression comes, real satisfaction is found when we run it in the right way. In the way it was designed to be. So let's come back to that passage in Genesis. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. I'll just read you that first verse again, if you've got it there. Uh, easy to find, page three. And God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. We have been made. Now those other things I mentioned at the beginning about our identity, they're true as well. You really are made up of chemical elements in your body. You are the uh, product, if you like, the outcome of uh, your ancestors and your DNA and your family's history. But even more fundamentally than all of those things, we are creatures who have been made by God. And we're not made by God and then just let loose to do whatever we want. No, God loves us too much for that. He's designed us for a purpose. And here in Genesis, before the fall, we see that that purpose was to be God's representatives on the earth that he's made. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over, etc., etc., or steward, look after, care for, be God's uh, agents, his emissaries on earth. We're the ones who can have a relationship with God. That's what differentiates us from the rest of creation. We have a, a special role to play as people in the image of God meant to be looking after the earth, looking after each other, and looking after our relationship with God. And the story of the Bible, of course, is that we've got all three of those things wrong. We've broken our relationship with the world that we're meant to look after. We've broken our relationship with one another, just turn on the news. We've broken our relationship with God, all of us, if we're honest, in our hearts. And the rest of the story of the Bible is God 
putting in action a plan to put that right. To give us a renewed identity in Jesus Christ. That's what we've been looking at in the story of Ruth over the last couple of months. That he came to put right as the Redeemer what we had broken. What we had walked away from. The danger and the death that we'd set our life on a path to. Jesus came to pay the price on the cross to die for our sins. That we might be forgiven and returned, restored back to that relationship with God that we were made for right back there in the beginning. You see, God is a good and perfect God, and he gives us each life for a reason. Our freedom, our joy, our pleasure, our purpose comes when we discover not so much who we are, but whose we are. So you can see why, if we hold to that belief, if we believe those words of Genesis 1, that holding that belief will bring us into disagreement at times with a culture that believes there is no external or objective creator. We are a culture that often believes we're free to create our own identity. And I can see why you would reach that conclusion if you don't believe in a God. But because we do, and because we know that God is good, we can trust that when he talks about who we are and how we're best to live, it's because he has our best interests in heart, at heart. Sometimes when we get into these sort of debates or we see things that we don't agree with, we miss the fact that people are trying to find the best interest for their lives, the best way to live their life. The problem is we need the Bible to tell us that we don't usually know what's best for us. And even when we do, we don't even choose what's best for us. It's a matter of faith. Believing that this is true. That we were made and designed and given a purpose. That our identity is found in who we are as God's creation. True for all of humanity and all the things we see. And even more than that, that when we come to Jesus, we are, as the New Testament tells us, a new creation. Remade, restored, returned to that lovely relationship where we can walk through life with God. It doesn't mean that we'll always get it right. It doesn't mean that we suddenly become perfect people by no means. But what it means is that God has put us back in the right way of living, which is living with him as our loving Heavenly Father, as Martin mentioned earlier on. Next year, we're going to spend a lot of time traveling through the story, if you like, the unfolding of the New Testament, all that follows on from Jesus' birth at Christmas through gospel, through acts, through one of Paul's letters, through uh, another letter, all the way through to Revelation, parts of Revelation, to see how that continues to unfold. As we do that, we're going to hear teaching, particularly from Jesus, on things that are not going to sit easily all the time alongside the way that the culture around us tells us we should live. There's going to be a, a clash. And it's helpful to remind ourselves that that clash is not just because people don't like each other. It stems from this way of seeing the world and seeing who we are. And the answer, the way forward, the hope that we hold out, I would suggest, is not to argue about 
the specific expressions of that, but to always come back to the truth of the Bible, the relevance of our creation, and the power of the gospel. We could spend days, weeks, months, years, the rest of our lives, I think, arguing with people who have such a different worldview over what marriage should be. But the reality is we're just coming from such completely different starting points. What we want to be able to do is say to people, we believe in a good God who made us and who loves us and who wants what is best for us, sometimes even when that isn't what we think is best for us. And yet he loves us so much that even when we do go our own way, he came to rescue us. That the conversations, the best conversations to have when we are in conversation with people who don't believe is actually to come right back to the heart of what it means to believe in the God who made us and then came back to save us. And who won't let us go because he loves us and he wants what is best for us. And we're not arguing because we think we're better or we're perfect or we've discovered some wonderful moral code which is our own creation. No, we're coming back to this idea that it's God outside of us who gives us life. And like a Formula One car racing on the track, it's when we live the life that we're designed for, whether that is marriage or whether that is single, which should be honoured just as much. It's living that life as God calls us to, in which we will find that freedom, we'll find that joy, we'll find that purpose, we'll find that meaning. We'll be back, as it were, in Genesis 1, fulfilling that role that God has called us to. So I want to finish by just sharing four thoughts to take away, four points of application up on the screen. First of all, trust God's good design for who we are. There'll be lots of different voices in the world telling us who we are, or trying to get us to define our own identity. It's never as free as it sounds, by the way, because there's always pressure to live a certain way. But we can trust in God's good design for who we are. Secondly, I think that we really need to do better at recognising everyone is made in God's image. Every single person. Don't fall for the lie that some are more important than others, some are more worthy than others, some are better than others. It's not true. Genesis 1 says that every single person is made in God's image. No matter which country they were born in, no matter their physical capabilities, no matter their age, no matter their, whether they have a home or they're homeless or whatever it is, every single person is made in God's image. And God's whole attitude to this subject is one of love. And so the third thing then is to love and listen to those who see the world differently. It doesn't mean we're always going to agree, probably a lot of the time we won't. But our posture should be one like Jesus, of loving and listening. Jesus asked so many questions when he met people that weren't living life God's way. He didn't just come always straight in with a, you're wrong, you must do it like this. He asked questions, why do you see it like that? Why don't you see it like this? Live and listen, those who see the world differently. Francis Schaeffer, the famous uh, apologist, evangelist for Christian faith, said, if I have an hour to tell people the gospel, I spend the first 50 minutes listening. Because we need to understand where people are coming from. The worldviews, the understandings, the beliefs that we all hold, whether we're Christians or not. 
other faiths, no faiths, whatever it might be. We all have beliefs about the world and about our identity. And it's really helpful to get the conversation onto that, not onto the specific straight away of what that looks like, but actually come back to that key question of who are we and what gives us our identity? And then finally, my fourth application, believe in new creations in Christ, not just for ourselves, but for others. Jesus is still doing the same work of transforming hearts and minds. His Holy Spirit is still active in the world, calling people back to him and showing them that actually life is designed to be lived by, through the grace of our God who made us. Jesus is still doing that. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes we can feel as Christians that we're sort of an ever-decreasing minority, just sort of rattling the cage. But actually, Jesus is still out there doing what he does best, which is calling people into forgiveness and new life. He's still making new creations. The way to see the changes in the world that we'd love to see is probably not through policy and legislation. It's through the gospel. Because that's the only thing that will change our hearts and change other people's hearts to know and love the God who made them. It's the power of the gospel transforming hearts and minds which will win this nation for Jesus so there's four things just to reflect on maybe one of them particularly um, speaks to you or maybe it's something else as we heard that passage in Genesis 1 remember (coughs) please remember you're not (coughs) a blip on a speck for an instant in a night on nothingness You are a beloved child of God. You exist because he wanted you to exist. And he didn't want anyone else to exist who's just like you. He wanted you to be you. And your real identity and your real freedom and your real joy and your real purpose in life is not through what you do or even what you do in church or volunteering or your job or your family even ultimately the reason we all have a meaning is because God made us and then he died to save us so let's pray Heavenly Father thank you that You wanted us to be a people on your creation to rule and care for it, to steward it and to look after it. And we're sorry, Lord, for all the ways that we collectively as humanity and each in our own way have at times broken that relationship with your creation, with one another and with you. But thank you, Lord, that you loved what you had made so much that you put into action and then fulfilled a plan to step into that world to offer this free gift at your cost of forgiveness of mercy of grace of becoming a renewed creation in you Lord, will you help us to find our identity in you and to enjoy the freedom 
of expressing that in the way that our life was designed to live. And Lord, when we meet others who see the world differently, who haven't got that faith, Lord, help us to be humble, help us to be loving, and help us to be bold in speaking of the God who made us and then who died to save us. Lord, may we and the people that we love find that identity in you and in it freedom, purpose, hope and joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.